I was a, a brat of a kid, to be honest. And um, it was hard lessons um, learnt. And I had a lot of older players uh, in front of me that guided me and mentored me. So I was lucky from that perspective. My name's Andrew Lee, and welcome to The Good Life, a politics-free podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full, with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers, about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to tell your friends or rate us on Apple Podcasts. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. Let me start by introducing our panellists. Uh, Sue Reed's competed internationally in weightlifting, discus and javelin. Uh, she's a former Matildas goalkeeper and founded Life Unlimited Psychology, which works with high-performance sports people. Rob DeCostello is Australia's greatest ever marathon runner, whose 207 is still the Australian national record, and who's founded the, Austra the Indigenous Marathon Foundation, uh, a leadership program for Indigenous Australians. And Heather Garriock is the coach of Canberra United, who's had a successful career as a midfielder, playing 130 matches for the Matildas, three Olympics and three FIFA World Cups. I wanted to start with, uh, with childhood sporting experiences. And uh, of our panellists, Sue, I think you have had the, uh, uh, the, the earliest uh, intense experience of sport. Tell us what it was like when your parents discovered that you were a pretty good discus thrower. <laughs> um, so my first experience, I think I'd just turned five, um, and my parents took me down to Little Athletics because my brother played, of course. Um, I went into discus <coughs> competition. I think I threw two or three times further than everybody else. Uh, and my parents rushed home and were like, we've got a champion. Uh, and my father was a nuclear physicist and very obsessive. So he then proceeded to read every single book on the planet on athletics, weightlifting, uh, training, and how to progress into that elite sport. So pretty much from the age of five, that became my life. And how many hours a day were you were training? So. Uh, from about five to seven, uh, about three hours a day, and then from sort of eight on about five hours a day. I did say they were a bit obsessive, so, <laughs> but um, yes, so that was quite an intense experience. So it was school, it was up, training, school, training, bed, training, school, that was pretty much it. <laughs> and yeah. Rob, for you, uh, the, uh, the, the start on your, uh, your running comes in the, uh, in the streets of Kew. Uh, tell us the story as to uh, as to how your dad decided it would be the eldest of his seven children that uh, that took him out and went out running with him. Uh, thanks, Andrew, and uh, thanks for the opportunity to be part of the uh, the session. Um, yeah, look, uh, my dad uh, knew that he had high risk of heart disease. His his mother died from a heart attack in her forties, and uh, and at that time. There was a, a bit of a, a fitness boom coming, you know, very slowly, and there were these exercises. That everyone was on to these. Uh, the Canadian Air Force had a, an exercise regime called 5BX, and it was, you know, sort of doing, you know, jumping on the spot and running on the spot and doing push-ups and all that sort of stuff. And um, and my dad got into into that. This was before people ran. Um, and he was doing his exercise in the bedroom and the light fitting collapsed 
out of the ceiling and smashed on the floor. <laughs> and mum jumped up and said, okay, out, get outside. You're not allowed to do that inside anymore. So, so he subsequently was banished from the house. So he had to go outside and exercise. And that's when he started running. And uh, he must have been lonely because he used to drag me out. I was about, I was much older than five. <laughs> I was about 12 or 11 or, or something like that. And, uh, and he dragged me out of my bed at half past six in the morning and, and wanted company. And, uh, and, and that's pretty much how I started running. I was very reluctant. I used to hide my shoes and, uh, and hide <laughs> under the covers and try to find every possible excuse to get out of, out of running. But my, my dad was also pretty fanatical and, and, uh, and determined to, to make sure that I, I did it. And, and then eventually I got into, into school, a group of mates at, at school, and we you know, met up after school and, and trained, I think, mainly so I didn't have to get up at half past six in the morning and go running. So, and, and then it just became, uh, and at, at that stage I was, I was a hopeless runner. I was a plotter. Uh, you know, I'd finish, my feet would sort of point out like a duck and I'd waddle along and, uh, and I'd finish in the middle of any of the, the cross-country races and things. So it was a, an interesting introduction to something that was going to become such an important part of my life. And Heather, for you, you had a, a more formalised structure around you with both the Westfield Sports High School, McCarthy Youth Football Academy. How did you find uh, that, that experience of being in, uh, in an intense sporting environment through your education shaped you? Um, I guess mine's very different to both stories. It's more of environmental. I was um, brought up in a football family. My dad's Scottish, um, moved to Australia when he was 18 and he played at a semi-professional level, so that's sort of how I got introduced. He'd play on a Sunday. Um, I'd go. I'd go along to the training sessions. So it was almost um, gaining a passion for for a sport, and then I found a passion at a young age. And then I think where the elite status sort of come in was when I did get selected for Westfield Sports High School, um, which is a high school in in Sydney, uh, quite prestigious. A lot of athletes have come through. Uh, Westfields, whether it be football or cricket or rugby league or whatever it is. So for me, that was, um, I guess, the start of, of my dream to one day become an Olympian. And you made your uh, Australian debut at, uh, at age 16, which I, I think might have been the record until Ellie Carpenter bro broke it. Um, what was it like for you to be on the uh, international stage at such a young age? Um, obviously confronting. Um, to be honest, I, when you're 16, you think you know everything. And um, for me, it wasn't such a, a straight road. And I got got straight into the national team. There was disappointments and dropping, uh, or getting dropped from teams and adversity. And for me, um, anybody that knows me knows I'm a fighter. And I grew up in Campbelltown in, in the western suburbs of Sydney. So um, once I got dropped from teams like that, I, I wanted to get in, in there. And um, I got invited down to the AIS for a camp. and. Um, showed the coach that um, he's something that, that wants to take to the Olympics. So, yeah, it was hard and it, it was lessons learnt along the way and I, I was a, a brat of a kid, to be honest, and um, it was hard lessons um, learnt and I had a lot of older players uh, in front of me that guided me and mentored me, so I was lucky from that perspective. So, both through your own childhood experience and also through your, your current uh, professional work, uh, you must have seen a whole lot of different parents in terms of how they approach their kids' sport. What do you think is that right balance between uh, looking after your kid but also pushing them 
uh, the extent necessary to, to really perform at a top level? Yeah, I think it's a challenging question because I think you, there's no doubt you do have to have some element of that parental support. Um, you can't get up at 10 years old and um, drive yourself to all your trainings. I think you do have to have an element of discipline that your parents often provide because as a kid you often are a bit reluctant. Um, so you need that support. And I think really tuning into the psychology of the child you have and knowing do they have talent, do they have the psychological makeup and architecture and is that something you can foster and support. And I think that means tuning into where is that person at, at each. Uh, each point in time. And each child, even in the same family, is going to be different. Some may have a certain amount of grittiness and you know that they're going to make it through, and some may be a little uh, gentler, maybe. So I think uh, you, I think there's got to be a certain amount of pushing and a certain amount of compassion around that as well. Um, but it's something, you know, throughout all the sporting history, we've seen different kinds of parents. Um, one element is there's often this, you know, pushing kind of approach but I think the ones that are probably most successful also orient well to the child and try and you know broaden their horizon as a whole person. How much did it help for you that you had uh, a mix of sports you had the throwing and the soccer? Yeah I think for me having both an individual sport um, gives you that very strong sense that whatever effort you put in you get a direct outcome. Um, the team environment, you learn cooperation, you have fun. Um, there's a, a very different skill set that you learn in there and you're dependent on other people. So there's a lot of good skills in learning that. For me, both seemed really important in developing myself and my personality. I found it very hard to give up either one because I loved being with teams and, uh, and some people here would know I was a great singer on the tour bus. Um, so um, there was also, yeah, and then having that individual pursuit, which I think um, is something in life that you, you have to know that you've got that effort you can put in mm. and have some kind of outcome. So yeah, I think they're, they're both really helpful. And I think in a psychological sense, we see a big difference with the kids coming through who play any kind of sport versus the ones that play no sport at all. And I think just in terms of psychological development, emotional development, it's a really key element of a child's um, development for life, not just for their sporting pursuits. And in terms of uh, getting expert support, Rob, you were pretty lucky to, uh, to find your coach in your high school. Uh, tell us about the role that uh, Pat Clohessy had uh, on you in, in shaping you into an athlete. Yeah, look, uh, it was tremendous, Andrew. I mean, um, you know, Pat was uh, the a history teacher at Xavier College, and and when I was at the junior school, I started doing, uh, starting competing in cross country, and and I still remember, you know, sort of as a young kid going over to the senior school and sitting in the in the grandstand as as with all of the the uh, the schools. Uh, cross-country team listening to Pat talking about the cross-country event coming up on the weekend and you know I was just this little kid sitting there you know sort of bright-eyed and uh, and you know probably shaking in my boots um, and and from that you know Pat and I developed this amazing relationship that still exists today um, and he he taught me so much more than than just the training sessions uh, you know anyone pretty much can find the sorts of training that you need to do. Uh, and there's a huge variety. There's so many different, you know, from a running perspective, there's so many different ways to achieve very similar performances. So to me, it goes far deeper than, than the actual sessions itself. 
it is it is about the values and the and the the philosophy and the you know sort of the um, uh, the attitudinal and the beha- behavioural things which I think uh, a good coach and and you know I think good parents also instill in their in their kids. Um, you know, there's a big difference between just having the knowledge, but having having someone who's wise. You know, someone who's wise has has the knowledge, but they've also got the experience to go with that knowledge. And uh, and I was really fortunate to to um, you know have someone like Pat involved in in my life, uh, and and absolutely as a as an athlete. So uh, it was it was a blessing. How did your parents relate to him? Do they essentially were they comfortable handing over the the, the training program, or do you remember oh, yeah. some sort of yeah. creative tension? No, no, there was no no tension at all. I mean, uh, my my parents were absolutely thrilled to, uh, and and you know, I mean, um, my dad ran uh, athletic or did athletics when he he was at high school, but uh, it was a completely different thing whereas you know Pat had he was one of the first Australians to to go to the US on an academic scholarship and went to Houston University and he traveled all the way through Europe with uh, with the great New Zealand distance runners with Arthur Lydiard and Murray Helberg and Peter Schnell and and he learned so much about about the you know the, the attitude that you needed to have um, and, and his involvement and, and uh, relationship with my family was, was as strong as it is with me. Heather, can you say a bit about uh, the great coaches that have shaped you before we go on to your role as a, as a coach? Uh, Fleming Nielsen is uh, someone you've spoken about in the past. Yeah, for sure. And just listening to uh, Rob and uh, Sue about not the skill set of what an athlete is made up of, but more of... Uh, the mental side of things and the mindset, I think is just such a key takeaway. And I wish I knew that in my football career as an athlete and, and I just didn't, I just played to get better and train on the training paddock. So uh, I think that's a, a valuable lesson. Can you say a bit more about that? What, what is it exactly you feel you didn't know? Um, well, there was no such thing really as psych- psychology. If you are tapping into the psychologist, then you were, um, there was something wrong with you and yeah, okay. or that's what I would think. Um, so for me, it was all about the team and all about training harder on the pitch and running harder and running more kilometres. I would do, to get fitter, I'd do my seven Ks a day so I could be the best conditioned athlete and I'd hit the ball a, a, against the wall. But in actual fact, it wasn't that that was stopping me to be the best I could be in, in the world or whatever it was. It's more mindset and how I could um, shift my mindset to become a better, better footballer, mm. um, both on and off the field. And I think that's such a vital thing, especially in this day and age. And that's what I try and speak to my athletes about: is is more the the mindset and the journey rather than just the technical and tactical side of things. And what was it that uh, you admired about Fleming? Um, he, he was a tough coach, and um, most athletes will realise uh, later on in their career or after the, their career when they, they reflect on who their best coaches were. And my best, best coaches were most definitely my hardest coaches, the coaches that pushed me to the point of um, being out of my comfort zone constantly. Um, Fleming was a European coach, a Danish coach. I remember I was uh, contracted in Denmark and uh, the first season I went there it was almost like the dream season. I scored in every single game. I was playing left back, so I was playing more defence but scored in every single game and I got a lucrative contract the year after and I remember coming back playing five games and I, 
I just couldn't get on the score sheet. I wasn't playing well. And he pulled me into to his office and just said, um, it's not good enough. And basically just said, you know, you need to pull your socks up and, and, and do better. I thought I was, I was doing pretty well. And he said, you've changed as a person and um, you need to, you know, focus on what you did when you, when you were here last season. So he was really influential in, in that way, but very, very tough on me. I, could, I, I didn't get away with anything. He, he was more... Um, pushed me in a way uh, from a mental perspective rather than a football perspective and gave me little goals each and every session that, that, that was really good. The other person, Alan Stadjic, who's the Matildas coach at the moment, um, we had a love-hate relationship and probably still do, even though I'm part of the, part of the staff as well. He's, um, he's a coach that it's his way or the highway and whatever he says, it's, it's black and white and he was very, very harsh no matter what the situation. Um, he's eased off a little bit after married kids and different things like that, as you do. But at the same time, I think the coaches that push you to, I, I, I guess, being out of your comfort zone are, are my best coaches, um, most definitely. Because it's always nice to look back on your career and say, I didn't cruise through my career, I was actually out of my comfort zone. So those two, mm. most definitely. Uh, Rob, I mean, you've got a formal coach for the Indigenous Marathon Project squad in Adrian Dodson Shaw, but you do, uh, you know, got a lot of hands-on contact with the uh, with the squad. Um, what is it that you're uh, keenest to instil in them uh, as they go through what is a pretty extraordinary program? Uh, it's about six months from uh, starting running to completing the New York Marathon. Yeah, look. Um, uh what am I trying to instill in them? Um, it, a realisation that they are more than what they ever thought they were. Um, a, a sense of, of self-worth and pride and uh, uh, as, as Indigenous people, um, they have had to overcome uh, a lot of challenges, uh, you know, racial challenges and social challenges and health challenges. Um, so they, they need to be tough, they need to be resilient, uh, and they need to realise that, that life, the hardship, is an incredible learning experience. And, and uh, never shy away from doing something where you may risk failing or you may risk hurting yourself because uh, you, you, it, it makes you strong, it makes you tough, and it gives you a, uh, a realisation of, of uh, what you can endure. Um, and, and then also uh, we tap into their, um, their drive to ensure that the legacy they leave enables their children and their families and their communities and all, all Indigenous Australia uh, to have a better life than what they've had. Uh, you know, we have about 150, 160 applicants for the 12 positions each year, and uh, we select them on two things. One is is what what's going to keep them going when they hit the wall in the marathon at 30k, and they've got nothing left, and they've still got 12k to go. Where are they going to go inside, and what's the, the force and the strength that's going to keep them going and not have them give up? Um, and, and then the other thing is 
uh, as a foundation, we're looking for inspirational leaders. So we have to see in them mm. a capacity to drive change, uh, a, cap a capacity to inspire others to to follow in their footsteps and to to um, you know to to really uh, do things that they never thought possible. So you know, um, and and their stories are um, some of them are horrific and tragic and. And, uh, and it's a disgrace that we have situations like this, not just with individuals, but with, with a, such a large group within our, our country. But to be able to use that as a force for, for positive things is, is something really, really important. It's like doing a hard training session. You know, if, if you never train hard, if you are doing a, a workout in the gym and as soon as you start to get a little bit of burn, you stop, then you're never going to improve. You know, if you're if you're out there training hard and you're racing, and as soon as it starts to hurt, you back off. Well, you know, you're never going to reach your potential on the day, but you'll never reach your physio physiological potential as well. Because you know, one of my favourite quotes is uh, an old Arnie Schwarzenegger uh, quote, which is, "Everything to failure is a warm-up." <laughs> <laughs> you know, so you've got to get out there and you've got to push hard. And, and it's, it's that last little bit where all the magic happens. It's like, you know, sort of, I think one of the, the girls were saying, it's, you know, getting outside your comfort zone. I'd tell our guys, outside your comfort zone is where all the magic happens. And, and you've got you've to have that courage and, and, uh, and belief and the support around you to, to get yourself outside the comfort zone. So one of the techniques that uh, you've used most in your career, and, and I think also is important to you in your professional work, is visualisation. Can you talk us through the value of visualisation for an elite athlete? Yeah, so, I mean, there's a lot of research now in terms of the benefits of mental rehearsal, visualisation in psychologically preparing you for those key events. Um, you know, at top level, many athletes are very similar physically. And like Heather was saying, it's really about that ability to push further mentally. Uh, the beautiful thing about our brain is it doesn't always know the difference between when we're actually training versus when we're mentally rehearsing training. And in our brains, we can rehearse exactly as we want to perform. Um, and in sport, you've got to know that you can turn up on a particular day at a particular time and perform in exactly the way you need to perform. So before you get to those major events, I guess our mind gives us that ability to mentally rehearse over and over and over again. So by the time you might get to that race, you've done it 300 times. Um, and you don't always visualise it all going perfectly, you visualise you performing as you need to perform um, through the difficult challenges. And so there's more brain research now showing every mental rehearsal we do, we start to build nerve and neural connections and to build those foundations in the body. And that's, I think, that added layer that we can bed down more strongly. Um, and then, uh, you know, as I said, uh, over and above the physical training, it's also a great form of recovery and deep recovery. So when we get into those deeply relaxed states and add in the visualisation, it's also a way of getting deep cellular recovery, which is important to be able to bounce back and keep training hard. So, so how often would you visualise a, a big event before it happens? And, and when, when would you do it? Is, is this something you just yeah. do once the night before? Or is this something you're doing at every no. training session? And generally, that's what we say, with any kind of technique, don't wait till the most challenging moment to try it. Uh, if you haven't done deep breathing before, don't wait for the key moment to try it. Uh, it's don't really, do it on the starting line. Don't do it on the starting line because <laughs> you'll just faint. Uh, the key thing is it is about the number of repetitions. So I'm thinking back to one of my first national championships when I was about 11. Um, 
And leading up to that, like it was a you know it was a big thing back then. It was a year long um, uh, preparation, and so I probably would have done a good six to seven months of visualising that event. I knew the stadium we were going to in Darwin. I knew my competitors. I knew how far I wanted to throw in. Um, shot put and discus and so you do your physical training then every night it was about a half an hour process of getting into a deeply relaxed state and then visualizing the whole competition so i would visualize exactly how far i want to throw i'd visualize my celebration um, and and interestingly that for me that first national championship i visualized throwing two meters further than my personal best which is quite a lot in a throwing event um, and on my last throw i did exactly that distance, which was two metres further than I'd ever thrown before, and one, which was good. Um, but that really cemented for me that that mental focus was mm. where I could get mm. that extra edge. Um, I certainly wasn't the most physically gifted, or the, certainly not the biggest or the strongest in the throwing world. Um, so it was that ability, I think, to focus the technique and the brain on, on how I could perform on the day. Now, Heather, one of the... Uh uh, inevitabilities of sport is that uh, things are not, not going to turn out the way you want every single time. Uh, you've just come off the back of a, uh, a season for Cambry United, which I think it would be fair to say didn't turn out the, the way you had visualised it go, going into the season. How do you deal with that as a, as a coach and how do you work your players uh, through to make sure that they're, uh, they're, they're ready to go next time around? So what I'm going to do, I'm going to start visualising now because the season doesn't start until September. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> visualising how, how my team's going to go week in, week out. And I'm going to see if that works too and I'll get back to yes, you, OK? Excellent. Um, <clears throat> no, the season didn't go to, to, to plan and um, when you get a new coach in with new staff and new personnel, um, I, I had a, a lot of young players this season. Um, I'm quite a confident person and um, for me, being optimistic is really important. Um, but in saying that, Canberra United have made the finals the last 10 seasons pretty much um, bar in 2012. So for me, um, I didn't see failure at the end of the year, although I see failure now. And I think the team failed, I failed. Um, and in life, I think you need to fail because you don't grow. And I think this past season has been the most I've ever grown. As a, as a person, and it'll be the most I'll ever grow as a coach, I think, in this particular period, because I'm so, I guess, inexperienced, and I, I was, it was my rookie season, um, that I'm learning the most, and I've had to reflect. So, um, look, we, we had different players. There was different scenarios that played a part, which um, most definitely, I, I would say, um, someone like Heather Reid, that was the CEO of Canberra United, um, she was no longer part of Canberra United, who'd done a lot of the rec recruiting now, if you know team sport, you know recruiting's the most important thing. And for me, I didn't quite have the, the calibre of player that I needed to that, to peak um, at the right time. So that's one thing that I'll rectify this season. And the other thing is, is I put a lot of um, emphasis on young players and trying to breed our own here in Canberra. And when you've got the foundations that Canberra do, when you've got a university like University of Canberra, that can support that when you've got the AIS, the best facilities, um, I think one of the best in the world, that can can um, put together a, a great program, then there's sustained, sustained success. And I think it's really important that um, me as a coach focus on that. And when um, Graffy was speaking at the start, have a look at what she's accomplished. It just mm. didn't happen overnight. She's been a long-term coach, Caps coach, Opal's coach, and it's someone like that that you look at that you think, 
okay, well, I'm sure she had a failures and I'm sure she'd be able to tell you every single failure, but at the same time, if she hadn't, then she wouldn't have succeeded where she is or what she's doing today. So I think it, it was a big, big learning curve. I'm going to do things a lot different this year. I think I changed my personality to suit um, players and, and, and I was a bit too much of a yes person. Um, if you know me as well, I'm very much straight down the line. I'm um, relentless and um, ruthless at times and I don't think I implemented that in my Cambrian High School this year. So that didn't implement then on the field. So do you think you're going to be a tougher coach in some sense this, this time round? Probably no nonsense. I, I think um, I was successful as a player and I was a no nonsense player, but at the same time, I think let's do our business on the field and, and for me, the girls need to enjoy their football off the field. That's the most important thing and having that, that correct balance. Um, mm. I think I was too obsessed with everything this season and getting everything perfect and everything right and it's just not possible. It's, mm. It just doesn't work like that. So... Um, probably being a little bit more human and um, just allowing the, the team to, to express themselves in, in, a, in their own individual ways. Oh, thank you for that. I mean, from an outsider's perspective, I thought you took on too much personal responsibility for how the team performed. Um, but that, I think, speaks very well to you as a, as a leader. No, but as, as an athlete, you always, um, you, ne you never get smashed if you don't um, qualify for Olympics or you, you don't make it to the next stage of a World Cup. You always look at the coach and see how bad the coach is, um, whereas I've never had to actually really reflect. Only when I did cross-country, um, when I was a top cross-country runner, um, that it was an individual sport and you had to reflect on yourself, whereas when you're in a team sport, you tend to hide. And it's the players that hide, are the players that aren't going to grow. But for me, I think, I think it, it was very important that um, you know, things didn't go well this year for me to then grow and be the best I can be over the coming years. So there's having a poor season and then there's missing out in your Olympic dreams. Uh, so uh, let me throw you in the, uh, in the deep end and kind of rip the Band-Aid off. You're a, you're a, uh, a person who started training three hours a day from age five, who had your eye on the Olympics, who was of the right age to go to the Sydney Olympics, and then something happened. I can't remember what you're talking about. Yes. So, <laughs> um, yeah. So I think for me that, you know, I knew by probably the age of eight, this was what I wanted to do. That sense of wanting to go to the Olympics was very strongly instilled in me. Um, I think seven years out, had an article written about how I could be in the running for two sports um, once the Sydney Olympics got announced. And uh, I think the challenge for me was I was doing track and field and soccer. Uh, I was also studying full-time at not as a flexible university as University of Canberra. Uh, I was starting a business. Uh, my parents got divorced. There was a whole bunch of things kind of leading up to a key moment. And after a, a soccer national championships grand final uh, where I played terribly because I, I just couldn't move my legs and I knew something was wrong, um, we flew back home and I ended up com the next morning completely paralysed couldn't move any part of my body. Um, it took quite some time before somebody found me and was able to take me to hospital. Uh, and I spent quite a lot of time in the hospital system. The first few days was really trying to work out what had happened. They thought it was viral meningitis. Um, after quite a lot of tests, they discovered I, we were in Queensland during the finals, during the Ross River fever outbreak break season. Uh, so I got Ross River fever. Uh, I had glandular fever, cytomegalovirus, a whole bunch of different viruses that essentially led to my, my whole immune system shutting down. Um, 
And I think a key moment for me, and I think we've chatted about this before, is I was kind of in the hospital thinking, you know, the next few years are key to get to the Olympics. Uh, and I couldn't move. The, I was thinking, this is, uh, how am I going to get to the Olympics? How am I going to train? What am I going to do? And the doctor walked in and just said, um, oh, don't be ridiculous, you'll never play sport again. And that was kind of it. And for me, that was really that sense of what's the point of living if I can't do what is meant to be mm. meaningful and purposeful. Um, and it did, in many ways, it, it cut short that capacity to go to the Olympics. Um, I did eventually make it back to the national team um, after 2000, um, but that was a very long road. You know, it was a long road of medical challenges, of research, of looking at how do I get my health back. Uh, I'd had a lot of sustained damage kind of to my gut and to my nervous system, my immune system. Um, and, you know, I think Heather was saying, you learn from those great disappointments. So I think the key thing for being a good athlete or being good in any area of life is you won't get selected when you think you should at times. You will have injuries that will get in the way of you meeting sometimes your major dreams or other ones. And it's really about how do you respond to those events that show up. So the event or the stimulus is the stimulus. We can't always plan exactly what happens, but it's very much how you respond. And that event for me, fortunately, drove me more into the psychological world of really studying psychology uh, or n directing where that was going to go. Um, the whole field of health and this idea of what does it mean to be alive? How do we live a meaningful, purposeful life? Mm. Um, particularly when some of your dreams are taken away. Um, so even though it was a pretty catastrophic event, it certainly redirected my life in a very positive way and I certainly have a lot of empathy certainly for athletes I work with if they go through kind of, um, major injuries or, or letdowns um, and just other areas in life you know do a lot of work with trauma and grief uh, and other mental health issues and it's in every area of life we know the only one thing I can guarantee for everyone is we're going to go through more hard stuff and it's really how do we respond to that and respond to that in a in a way that's positive for our life or effective for our life you seem to to draw very much on that uh, that that experience in terms of your own mental toughness and and in still having sport as being part of your daily life right so. yeah it was i think for me i really had to look at what led to getting really unwell in the first place and really needing to bring some balance back into my life um exercise i can exercise now i have to manage it i can't do five hours training a day um but i do it really for that psychological well-being so i know when i exercise i feel great i sleep better i think better i'm a nicer person so i try and make sure that's part of my daily routine just to to manage health and well-being overall um and that's yeah really knowing that that those early kind of trainings are very much instilled in my body and mm. so place i think when we exercise we connect to the part of our brain that gives us perspective and helps us reflect and bounce back um, so there's a lot of usefulness just in our daily lives we've spoken a lot about the uh, activities you do but uh, the other key part or another key part of uh, performance is uh, what you put in your mouth uh, rob how's your diet uh, evolved in, in recent, recent years. You're uh, uh, now a, a ser pretty serious martial artist. People know you around, around this city also for your uh, uh, interest in uh, uh, good, good breads and good, co good coffee. Uh, what is it that, uh, that, that are the main focuses of, uh, of your diet and what advice do you give to, uh, to athletes in terms of how they eat? Uh, it's a big area, <laughs> um, but very quickly, um, I, I'm a, an advocate of following the sorts of eating patterns that we have evolved from, 
for, for thousands, hundreds of thousands of years we've eaten a certain way and it's only in the last 10,000 years that we've been agriculturalists. So, so all of the crops, all of the grains, wheat, rice, corn especially, uh, are very recent additions to our, our food. Uh, they're massive industries and they get huge marketing and employ a lot of people and uh, for governments it's a, they're really important. But um, there's also, I believe, a lot of, a lot of um, toxins in those foods that allow them to be so prolific. They're all monocrops. They're like a, you, know, you go into any of the pine forests and nothing else grows there. And wheat, rice and corn are also like that. No insects eat them. Uh, they, they're very resistant to moulds and fungi and, and bacteria. Um, but when we ingest them, our immune system has to work hard to, to cope with those natural food defence chemicals. So, so I'm 100% grain free. Uh, we'll have a business, as you mentioned, Andrew, that provides a range of grain free foods. Everyone knows about celiacs, but, but celiacs uh, still are, are encouraged or, or able to supposedly eat rice and corn that don't have gluten, but they have a lot of other natural food defence chemicals in there, very similar to gluten. Um, so, and there's more and more research coming out uh, to align them to cellular inflama inflammation and mental health or, uh, uh, yeah, well, the fructose and other things, but uh, dementia and Alzheimer's and, and a whole range of other things. So I eat meat, uh, eggs, nuts, seeds, a few veggies, a few root vegetables and, and that's about it. Uh, with our indigenous runners, uh, I, I encourage them to eat anything that has fur, feathers, feet or fins. <laughs> so it's, it's animals, you know, we are, we are predominantly a carnivore and we, we, have, uh, we have evolved from eating uh, high animal fat foods um, and, and I am not an advocate of a high carbohydrate, low fat diet. I'm an advocate of a, a high fat, uh, medium protein, low carbohydrate, grain free, almost sugar free, except for the fact that it is also cyclic. You know, we everything in our life is is cyclic. The day, the you know, the days with day and night, and the months and the cycles of the moon and seasons and and, and everything. Even running is a is a, a rhythm that you get into. Your heartbeat is a is a rhythm that you that you get into. And, uh, and food should also have some cycles in it as well, as we used to have when you could only get, you know, sort of bananas or peaches or, or different foods at a certain time of the year. Now you can get anything at any time because yes. they're all, all either imported from overseas or they're uh, ripened artificially. So, so summing it up, I mean, I try to get back to eating the sorts of foods that we as a species have evolved from and I think that they're the best things for us. And, and then you overlay a, a stressful environment and, and all of the other uh, uh, pollution and electromagnetic and, and all the other things which we have in our world today. Uh, and, and I think it just you know, sort of puts an incredible load on, on, our, on our health and our immune system that um, I'd prefer not to have that load there if I can avoid it. 
Heather, you have to manage the uh, the diets of an entire team. What uh, what advice do you uh, do, do you give uh, your players as to what they should eat more of, less of? Um, we have a nutritionist for that, but in saying that, I think um, from a, from an athlete perspective or uh, youngsters coming through, I didn't realise the value of nutrition and what you eat is essentially well, what my dad taught me at a very young age it's just like a car if you don't put petrol in your car the car doesn't go um, which that was instilled in me in, in a very young age um, but I think nutrition plays a massive part um, for me it was um, always just ed edu educating the girls on on what the best thing is to eat so f for me um, before and after physical activity is really important for the players to, to get their, their recovery foods in. And <clears throat> when Rob was just speaking, I'm thinking about what about the days where we used to get encouraged to eat a big bowl of pasta before, before and I'm thinking what the, the athletes in the room would think and the mums and dads and they're thinking, well, what, what do I feed my child if it's, if it's grain free or rice free? And um, I'm still of uh, well. I, I still eat pasta, of course, um, and I know the athletes, the Matildas, before games and different things like that. They have their pasta and they have their pre-match three hours before the game. Um, straight after a match, they have their sustagen or their their protein, and they also have their their um, steminate or the Gatorade or whatever it is. So nutrition plays a massive part, and there's going to be a lot more emphasis on that, especially going into Canberra United for next season because. Um, essentially, if you're not feeling good, like I spoke about at the start, technically, tactically, you can be the best player, but if you're not being able to operate at 100%, um, I think nutrition plays a, a big role in that. And so we'll emphasise that a lot in Canberra for, for this coming season. And so for you, nutrition starts uh, with, uh, with how you go into a supermarket. What's your, uh, what's your rule of thumb <laughs> for, uh, for how uh, a uh, healthy, healthy person should shop? Yes, so I'm a bit like, Rob, I um, recommend, can you kill it, dig it or pick it? That's, you know, are there, can you recognise the foods you eat? And if you, if you do shop at one of the major supermarkets, I think do not go down the aisles. The 40 or so aisles in the middle are just sugar and carbohydrate and chemicals processed in different ways. So if we go around the edges, the old kind of supermarket, you had fruits and vegetables, meat, maybe some dairy, uh, and then run down the middle, grab your toilet paper, run back out, don't look around, uh, except to buy dark chocolate every now and then. Um, but I think the, we know you don't get fitter, faster, stronger when you train. It's only during recovery, so it's your sleep and your nutrition. And certainly, I know some of the younger athletes I work with, um, you know, they might be racing from school to training, I'll grab something quickly. And I think I'm often trying to instill what you eat matters profoundly to your recovery. And we have to be very mindful of those choices we make. And it does, it's, it's not often convenient. That's the challenge. If you're going to buy bread, do buy Deke's bread. It's very tasty and very good. Um, and it's grain-free. Um, but it often, it's not convenient to, to eat well. You do have to do some preparation. You've got to find good quality food. If you're going to eat animals, fine, free-range, happy, healthy animals. They are much better for you when you eat them. Uh, and, and really trying to avoid those processed things. And that's very hard when you've got a high energy output for, for training. So really trying to manage that load. But I think it's been under 
focused on in sport for some time, that, that nutrition. In psychology now, it's very much about the gut-brain link and the inflammation of the brain. And when we're inflaming the gut, we're inflaming the brain. And we see a whole lot of changes to people's psychology and their focus. Uh, and obviously the stress that impacts us at a brain level impacts our gut. So there's a much greater focus on this mind-body-gut um, link that, that I think is absolutely key. Yeah. Well, we've covered a lot of uh, ground from uh, childhood uh, starts to coaching to eating well to visualisation uh, from three uh, uh, expert sporting stars. So, uh, so I'm very grateful to them for their contribution. So uh, please join me in thanking Sue Reid, Rob DiCostello and Heather Garriott for a really insightful conversation. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. We love getting feedback. So please leave us a rating or a comment on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes. Next week, I'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.